Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Thanks very much for joining us. I am David Thorne. I'm Director of NHS Insight and Interaction at MTech Access. And um, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm particularly delighted to introduce Deborah Lee to join us today. And it's um, she fulfills all our ambitions in terms of these monthly seminars. So I'm making no apologies for um, a slightly extended introduction. Deborah is Chief Exec of Gloucestershire Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. It's an innovative acute services um, trust centered upon two hospitals, one's in Gloucester and one in Cheltenham. She has over 9,000 staff and a budget of around about 620 million pounds a year. Her achievement in that role can be measured by her prominence in uh, regular polls of the most influential NHS leaders and also with female healthcare innovators. So I'm saying I'm, I'm trying not to embarrass her too much and make her blush. Um, Deborah started her career as a nurse, but she spent most of it in very senior leadership roles and interestingly for us and where we're going to go today, across an unusually broad area. She, she's managed primary care organisations, commissioning organisations, She's had operational jobs at big tertiary centres like uh, um, University Hospitals Bristol and now is, is the chief exec of a major organisation. Um, she can draw upon those perspectives today, but also upon the themes that link back to last month's interview, if you've heard that, with Dr Claire Fuller from the Surrey Heartlands ICS. That's Deborah is an influential member of One Gloucestershire which is the Gloucestershire equivalent of Surrey Heartlands, and it's a, it's a well-developed ICS. And then finally, um, what is also interesting today, Deborah is, to my knowledge, the only current NHS chief exec to have carried the bag, as we say in um, industry. She was a field-based market access person and a very successful one for a major pharmaceutical company 20 years ago. And she worked on some of the most intriguing uh, managed entry programs the industry has, has had in recent years. So we've given all of that. We're sure to have many questions coming in. Um, we've had a large number submitted already. So please forgive me if I don't ask your specific question. And, um, and please be patient with me. And with no more ado, some slight apologies for that extended introduction, but it was necessary. So Deborah, thanks very much for joining us. I'm going to put you on the spot straight away and ask you, um, what are the two or three biggest things on your whiteboard, metaphorically, if you like, at the moment? Uh, thank you, Dave, and welcome to, uh, to everybody that's joining us this afternoon. Really, really do appreciate the opportunity to share what it's like to be in my world, because I know that helps you to uh, operate in your world. Uh, it is, uh, you're right, Dave, it's a bit of a whiteboard, isn't it? I rarely work from home, but I am doing this afternoon, so uh, apologies. I don't think I've got anything... Uh, damaging on my bookshelf behind me, but hopefully you can't see uh, much of that. So what's on that whiteboard? Um, interestingly, because it's changing, as you might imagine, very much at the moment, even uh, this week has felt very different to last week. So what's at the top of my mind? 
um, the pandemic, it's changing, isn't it? So having uh, probably two weeks ago, I'd have said being ready for the, the signs of a surge. Uh, the signs are already upon us. Uh, in my hospital, we've admitted our first patients with COVID-19 in the last week, having not admitted patients for, for many, many weeks up to, up to that point. Um, so, so that's front of house. How do we make sure that we're ready for this next surge? Uh, we don't know what size it will be or when it will peak, but we know that we're going to have uh, we're going to have the same situation to some some degree as we had last time. But it is different this time, isn't it? So no one is going to allow the NHS to to pause and put everything on hold as we did the first time around. Very few of us were able to run non-COVID services to any large extent. I think my trust might have been an exception in respect of how much cancer care we continue to deliver, but that was because we very much set that as a strategic priority. We're fortunate in having two hospitals that we were able to, um, to manage pathways in a way that kept COVID and non-COVID care separated. A couple of other things on that whiteboard, the financial framework and trying to get my head around it and understand it, that's important. But the thing written large uh, and it's the largest thing that occupies my time is the health and well-being of my colleagues uh, and my teams. So when we went into this first time, uh, as you can imagine, the Dunkirk spirit came, came good. We didn't really know what was ahead of us and we all rallied and did what the NHS does does best, which was pull together and, and do the right thing for each other and most importantly for, for our patients and their families. We're going into it this time um, with a range of emotions. People are undoubtedly tired. People spend a lot of time talking to me about tanks that feel half empty or indeed empty. People are describing some anxiety and fear this time. Uh, they didn't really know last time what was coming so as I said there wasn't necessarily that sense of foreboding so people know that they may well be going into PPE for 14-hour shifts um, we didn't really understand any of that last time and they know that we're going to ask even more of them because we can ask for them to do all of that again during winter and whilst continuing to do more of the day job as I said at the outset so so my, my teams my people that's the thing that's at the front of my mind uh, most days. And so we, for those who haven't been out, because in some ways it'd be a surprise to people who said, so we've admitted a patient, yeah? It's, it's, because certainly it's not as if the hospital's been acting normally in the, in the couple of months before that. So just to explain, if people were to go back out to your hospital and hadn't been there for uh, a year, what are the big physical changes they would see? What, what is the difference? What does it look like now that it didn't look like before? Well, not too dissimilar to the high street that you might have been visiting or the restaurant that you might have visited. So lots of posters and signs, lots of stations with masks and, and hand sanitizers. So in, in that regard, it doesn't look um, doesn't look very different. A few months ago, it would have seemed very quiet. So in my hospital, like most, we um, ceased visiting. So that kind of buzz of visitors coming and going uh, wasn't there. A number of our most of our retail outlets closed. Um, so what's it feel like right now? It's kind of a bit of a combination of that. So we've got all the posters, the social distancing everywhere you go. There's a, a sticky tape on the floor telling you which way to go, where to stand, how to distance. Our shops are open, but only some of them and only some of the day. Um, it, it's quieter, but it does feel a bit a bit more buzzy than it than it did. But of course, most noticeably, um, what's different from the first few months of the the first wave is that we're all we're all wearing masks. You know, everywhere you go, you've got colleagues that, that are wearing masks. 
patients and visitors are wearing face coverings, but I'm out and about all day in my in my surgical mask, which um, which is different for the first time and and does feel very different. You know, you know how we communicate. You know what I do, Dave. My hands are flying all over. I'm expressive. My eyes are going. My, my mouth's going. And and suddenly uh, we're all behind behind a mask, and that can be really challenging for communication, particularly for for anyone that's hard of hearing or or relies upon facial expression. Um, and some of us, some of us communicate with our eyes, and some of us could could play poker, and, and therefore it really does really does impact on communication and relationships. Yeah, and one of the things, I mean, you were a nurse, Deborah, apart from the fact you ran a hospital now. One minute you're talking to somebody who um, is a certain kind of person, demographically or in gender or ethnic background. The next you're talking to somebody completely different, aren't you, in the next bed? So the, the communication skills and the, the verbals and the hand signals and the eye signals, yeah. you, you've already given me a bit of face palm moment of thinking what it's like to work a long shift and you're in PPE for the whole time. It's bad enough wearing a mask for a, um, you know, an hour on public transport. But yeah, that whole communication, I'm trying to think what it must be like to be a midwife, for example, yeah. we're, we're in that kind of environment is so difficult. So what, yeah. what, what is different in terms of services um, for medical patients for A&E? Because certainly the impression has been given that people haven't been coming to A&E. There's yeah. been a concentration on certain specialties um, that's created a bit of a surge and, and certainly an increase in waiting times. What, what's the position for you? Um, so quite quite similar to, to most hospitals, we um, our a &E activity probably plummeted. I think the trough was about 60% of usual levels. So that was the, if you like, the quietest that, that we ever got. And that was a fairly similar picture. Um, we're ranging now between about 90 and 100%, um, which is really challenging because to your to your point in your question, um, Dave, the department doesn't look like it did. Uh, we've had to commandeer larger parts of the adjacent environment so that we can create areas in our A&E for those that we uh, suspect will have COVID because of the, the symptoms, those that perhaps we know absolutely don't because they've had a recent negative uh, swab, uh, and those that fall somewhere between the two. So, so physically, the departments look different. When we've got patients in the department, they're socially distanced. Sternum to sternum, we have to measure two metres. Um, for us, because we've got some challenges around beds and space, we actually pioneered um, some perspex screens between patients on wards and in A&E, so we don't have to have the two metres. Um, before we got those screens, we were talking earlier, we've got 1,100 beds in our hospital. Before we got the screens, we had to take 300 out to create the social distancing needed. And um, that was OK when we had 60% of, of the demand that we're used to. But now that we're back up to 90, we had 103% one day last week um, of usual levels. We can't cope with that if we've got 300 beds missing. So, yeah, physically it does look and feel feel very different. Yeah, don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to put spec screens, because I'm, I'm just trying to imagine. But um, we've got some excellent questions here. So let's go straight into that sort of technical detail. If, it, if you're affected in terms of activity flow like that, how are you responding? to the change in the way that the financial flows have been signalled in the last month or so, where you're now effectively penalised as a system, if I've understood correctly, for undershooting indicative targets of activity. You're potentially rewarded for overshooting them. But as you said, you at one point you took out what? Nearly a quarter of your beds. 
So um, I guess what feels feels quite refreshing is despite the financial framework and its complexities and nuances, the focus feels very much around how can we do as much care as possible. So not many people thinking about the margin, you know, whether they're going to be under or overpaid. I think the overpayment incentive uh, is is just folly. Um, I've seen trajectories from my own system, from all the systems in the southwest, and with the sort of restrictions I've described, we've talked about PPE, we've talked about social distancing, we haven't talked about the impact of that on productivity. So the thought that we could do more activity this year than we did last year in the same period is frankly fanciful. And, and I think some of us feel a bit, um, yeah, the fact that that's been presented as a as a considerable possibility and, and with, you know, additional payment, I think some of us feel perhaps is, um, is not entirely fair because I don't think anybody feels that we're going to get access to those sorts of, of monies. So the challenge then becomes uh, losing, losing money because we can't do what we did last year. Um, we are um, trying to work through a, a complex process of managing uh, a process that allows us to make sure the baseline's fair. So you're measured against last year. So if last year was acceptable or different, you're already uh, on a hiding to nothing potentially. So take my own trust, for example. We changed the way that we counted and recorded lots of activity between last year and this year and we could do exactly the same thing and end up with a financial penalty because somebody doesn't adjust the baseline period for those changes. Um, we had an unusual um, period of, of work that we did outside the trust through a sort of innovative model with some partners so we had a particularly high baseline period in respect of activity for a few disciplines like endoscopy we had an absolute push to get endoscopy um, into the national standard of, of, of waiting times. As a result, we had particularly unusually high levels of activity in the baseline period, which will never repeat again, let alone with, with productivity losses of, of 30 to 40%, which is what we've got in endoscopy. So there's a bit of anxiety about the financial framework, but, but as I said, I'm most heartened by the fact that every clinician I talk to just wants to know how they can do as much work as possible because the thing they're worried about are the backlogs, the waiting times, the patient experience, but mainly the harm. The harm might, might be caused to a patient who waits too long for care. And that's not, you know, that's not cancer care because we're doing most of that. You know, that's the patient whose sight might deteriorate, whose hearing might deteriorate because we can't see them quickly enough. And then let me take out that point because, of course, if I've got it right, in your system, as we now call it, your ICS, you're the only acute trust. If you if you were in a, a bigger ICS or SDP, one of the challenges for you would be balancing that activity and the, the finances across maybe four or five uh, foundation trusts. So who's defined as your system? Are you measured it just by your trust? Are you measured in terms of the, the mental health community services locally? What What is a system? Yeah. Comes down to that yeah, uh, it's, it's a good question. So the system is defined really by those organisations that receive money from the commissioner in that in that system footprint. So for me in Gloucestershire, it's me as the acute trust. It's the community mental health trust. It's primary care where they're commissioned to provide services, uh, and it's some independent sector providers who aren't part of the national arrangements. So you're right, Dave. We've been given a system envelope. Uh, there are three different pots of money that come down to the system. 
and we're now uh, in a in a really productive discussion actually in my system about how we carve up that cake so the cake's the cake it's been defined nationally we can't we can't argue for it to be bigger um, it is what it is and um, as I said it's carved up into three sort of slices and we're trying to figure out how best to share out those slices between us and how much is the independent sector included there I mean you're talking about in, you know you don't have to get into the details of things but yeah. could be could be an example or some of the lower level work around orthopedics they included as well so um so some are and some aren't so you might you might recollect that during the pandemic a number of uh large national independent sector providers were brought into play uh, and they were commissioned by the center by nationally they were commissioned and we had access to their premises, their staff to do whatever we felt was right for our system. So many systems use them to keep doing uh, operating. Uh, we didn't use them for that in Gloucestershire. We brought all of their theatre equipment and theatre staff into our own um, hospital so we could build our ITU capacity from 18. So we had 18 ventilated beds pre-COVID and we went up to 91 during the pandemic and that's because we commandeered the uh, the ventilators that are used for theatre anaesthetics in the private sector for, for our ITUs uh, and we use the private sector to care for patients after their acute episode of care with us and particularly those that weren't COVID so so the patients who are waiting to go into care homes for example that didn't have COVID so they they remain um, separately funded uh, on a different basis but separately funded but the private providers I allude to are some of the smaller uh, often locally based providers who might deliver um, you know, a range of di diagnostic care they might deliver endoscopy um, they might be GPs who've set up their own limited company for example that are providing services so they are part of that that system envelope and that's uh, so that take leads us to I guess a logic another question and don't think we're I'll just say to everybody not to um, to take any of the answers that you give now as somehow kind of contractually binding or in, in some way they're, they're publicly um, enforceable. But looking ahead, how do you see your ICS a year or two from now? Because it, you appear to be ahead of other health economies that we hear from. Everything you've just said is predicated on good teamwork, on people trusting each other, on good local relationships across boundaries and things. Where is an ICS going? We, we keep hearing this repeated um, statement that the 42 systems will be ICSs in April. You know, that, that's only six months away now. Um, some of them look much further away than yours. But what will it look like? Will there be a CCG? Um, will there be separate trusts? Will the independent sector be independent? What, what does it all mean? What's it going to look like? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? And again, you know, I have to caveat this, don't I, with entirely personal views. I'm not privy to any, you know, policy speak. But I think there are there are a couple of things I, I'd observe is that I I think it would be an interesting decision if we were to um, move into some form of kind of structural reorganisation uh, in the next year or two. Um, we have such a large agenda cut out for us in responding to the legacy of the pandemic, even the first wave. And, and by that, I mean the scale of, of patients waiting, for example. So uh, in my organisation, you know, we had no patients waiting over 52 weeks when we came into the pandemic. Uh, if we did the same in the next six months as we did in the first, we'd have 19,000 patients waiting over 52 weeks. Now, that's the scale of, of impact. 
Um, and we have got not just the existing inequalities that were worsened by the pandemic, but we've got new inequalities uh, as a result of the pandemic. We've got people who have experienced social isolation, whose mental health has deteriorated, that may never have even been on anyone's radar previously. So my, my sense, Dave, is that this would be a bit of an unfortunate time to suggest that we all start moving the debt shares around on the deck. And so I'm personally hoping for some stability in terms of, of my ICS, that we're allowed to just get on and build on the really good relationships we've got in order to address you know, some of those legacy issues. That said, I am a bit nervous about uh, the scale issue. So my ICS is one of the smallest uh, in England and uh, we think small is beautiful. We think the reason that we that we do well is because we um, have a single common cause, which is um, the people of Gloucestershire. I think if I had to start uh, conversations in a room talking about the people of Gloucestershire and Worcestershire and Warwickshire or Bristol or Avon, or I, I think that we would become much less um, powerful, much less impactful uh, than than we are now. So, so personally, I hope that we won't have a lot of uh, reorganisation. And so, just one other point, what I should say, because it's often a question on people's people's minds, and you alluded to it. You know, will will CCGs stay? And if I frame that as will the distinction between those of us that commission and plan care, um, and those of us that provide care, you know, will that distinction remain? I guess what I'd just say is I hope so. Um, so having been having been a commissioner and, and often wondered about about the extent to which I do or don't add value, um, is if if commissioners work work well and, and I feel that mine do, then they can they can add value. Um, and the value that I feel they're bringing to my ICS right now is the stuff around um, population health and, and inequalities. You know, I'm not going to get to that as a provider CEO. My job is going to be, you know, to clear backlogs, to manage a pandemic, to keep my staff moving forward. I'm not going to get a lot of time to be working out in communities with populations on, on inequalities. And, and that's a really great opportunity for the CCGs to work with primary care, with PCNs, with local authorities, with public health to really get a grip of of both how the public uses you know, acute health services, um, but also how we deal with, with access to care in, in the context of inequality. Yeah, no, I, it's probably for another time, almost certainly it's for another time, and maybe you, you, you set up a, a task for us of who, of who we should have to follow you in subsequent um, interviews. You know, when it, I, I was asked, um, I was on a panel some months ago and someone said uh, something about CCGs, and a commissioning and I was saying well most of them haven't started commissioning yet you know and, and they're probably you know possibly going to be abolished there's a distinction between a CCG and a commissioner there's some good CCGs who clearly have one and are actively commissioning others it's it's a kind of processing uh, yeah. point. Yeah. it's one of the criticisms I'd have of the systems in Wales and Scotland is they don't have that commissioning separation they don't have that population planning uh, apologies for those who are from Wales and Scotland and probably saying, oh yes they do, I, not in my view. Um, and it, you're a different kind of chief exec, what you, you you expressed there, I don't know, you know, to push you a little bit, I'm not sure how much of it would really come down to this in an argument in the room, but do we, do we buy a new scanner? Do we address orthopaedic waiting times? Or do we put money into diabetes prevention? And yeah. it's very difficult for you, given your position and your territorial role, uh, or the chief executive of the ambulance service that covers your patch to have a neutral conversation about that, isn't it? Um, 
you know, you, you've got an interest in health economics unusually in yeah. terms of the idea of how we use that resource. Yeah, to me, yeah. that's questioning, not some of the process-driven things that we've seen. Um, but let me pin you down, though. I know there's no easy answer to this. How big should an ICS be? So I, uh, this is a real fudge of an answer, isn't it? But I think it should reflect natural communities. You know, yeah. so I don't think it's a size thing. I think it's about yeah. it's about natural communities. You know, I think if you force communities together, then um, you know, then it, it it doesn't work. So so Devon's big, but but Devon to an extent is a natural community. You know, people recognise the county of Devon. Um, people talk in my world about the three counties as being a natural community, um, but they're simply not. Um, we may be close to, to Worcester, we may be close to Birmingham, but we're in a healthcare region that doesn't have any of those counties in it. Uh, I'm the most northerly point of the southwest. My regional you know, colleagues are in Cornwall and, and Somerset and Devon. So mm -hmm. for me, it's, it's less about size and more about what is a natural geography, a natural community. Yeah. I, I look at what what are the catchment areas of football teams that tells you something about yeah. an access, you know it's, it, it's things like that isn't it I, I, yeah. I would imagine that someone if somebody really wanted to go out say they're going to buy an outfit for a child's wedding or something they'd probably go to Bristol rather than Birmingham yeah. in yeah. guess which probably shows where your affiliation is anyway I'll move on to what so why you've talked about the informal stuff there and the cultural stuff why is the teamwork so good in in one Gloucestershire, how have you come to this point where you're you're able to discuss this? I was I was talking to somebody yesterday who's a director of finance describing a health economy. I won't say where it is, where the the teamwork is absolutely absent. You you've come to where you are now because of some years of, of closeness. What what brought that together? So I think um, well I, I think a recognition amongst all the leaders in the county that we'll be better for good work team working than, than bad so I think if you start with um, it's got to be better to work well together than to fall out then I think that just puts everybody on the front foot because we're looking to give people the benefit of the doubt rather than to catch them out um, I've worked in systems where people were just absolutely you know at odds with each other they didn't like each other they didn't have respect for each other um, I've worked in systems where acute care has been very predominant uh, and the beauty of Gloucestershire is um, having one one acute trust, then I am just one voice. I'm often a loud voice uh, and I hope I'm often a kind of articulate and compelling voice, but I am just one. And so the voice of those that are representing community services and mental health, there's one voice, there's one ambulance voice and there's one commissioning voice. And I think that that balance, um, you know, works really well for us because we have to listen to each other and there's parity. Oh, it's really putting you on the spot now. Give us an example. If I were a patient living in Gloucestershire and, and you were defending the progress or, or not defending it, expressing it, publicising it, what, is there a change in the pathway, a change in the service and outcome? What would you point to that's result of that teamwork? So I suppose what I'd result to is the sort of financial frameworks that we've managed to agree. So if you come into my hospital as, a, as an elderly patient, there's no financial incentive for me to admit you. Um, you know, the, the pathways that we've designed are to, um, wherever possible, to return you um, to your home. Um, we can do that through a conversation with a hub that has social care in that conversation. Um, we can do that in a hub that has the voluntary sector 
in that conversation where everybody's kind of unifying purpose is to try to get you back home. Uh, I've worked in systems that were so fractured, you wouldn't have been able to get those four people into a conversation, you know, with a fortnight's notice about a strategic planning meeting, let alone, you know, in the here and now moment of, you know, we've got a patient in ED who really would like to get home, you know, bring, to bring all those parties together. Um, another example would be sort of in the planning space. So we decided to choose respiratory care as a, as a sort of uh, pilot to bring together truly integrated services. So um, it took us a while to get the people framework right. But if you're uh, in receipt of respiratory care in Gloucestershire, you'll be cared for by a team that has employees from the acute trust, from community services. You might have psychological input from the mental health trust. You might have somebody from a, a third sector, a voluntary organisation, um, and you won't know, hopefully, which of those organisations they come from. Uh, you won't ever have to repeat what you said uh, to one of them because they've got a shared record. Uh, and importantly, they can click on a portal and look at your records in your GP practice or in your acute trust or in your community district nurses record. Um, none of which we could have achieved if we weren't working as an integrated care system. So that shared that shared record thing, and that's it's come out, hasn't it, this week? The the push to really develop that across across the country. But it, it, it's the um, something else that I, I was interested there for our colleagues um, when we do training sessions for for teams out in pharma. You've mentioned a few times there the word hub. Yeah. I think that is a year ago that wasn't in people's vocabulary. It means all kinds of things now, whether you're a PCN or whatever, but it's a lovely word. But yeah. hubs is yeah. really, you know, maybe we'll come back to that if we've got time, because uh, I, I think um, our colleagues out there are intrigued about hubs, hubs and what they, re what they represent, you know. But um, yeah, so um, when we talk about innovation, You've mentioned their innovations in terms of service delivery. Obviously, our friends who are, are dialing in, when they talk about innovation, it's often about a product, either a medicine or a yeah. device or something like that. Yeah, a piece of software. Um, what's your advice to them generally? Because still, you won't be surprised. It was 20 years ago you were doing this. You know how difficult it is um, yeah. to bring innovations into the system. What's, what's your general feeling about this? And, and um, how can innovation acceptance of appropriate technologies be improved? Mm. Well, I saw it in one of the, the comments um, earlier, but academic health science networks have undoubtedly in my area been key to bringing innovations into the NHS. So if I think about a number of the things that we've adopted, we've adopted them because our local AHSN has advocated for them. So certainly, um, uh, colleagues on this call that can establish good relationships with HSNs will undoubtedly you know, have opportunities that others might not, not least because you can then uh, in, in, implement at scale, can't you, through the sort of um, you know, adoption programmes, you're not having to go around you know, 15 different NHS organisations or trusts if you can get in to a dialogue with your HSN, who I think are, in my experience, much more receptive to innovation um, than perhaps your average hospital manager might be because they'll probably have somebody whose job is just, you know, boss of innovation. They'll, you know, they'll have a team or a department whose job it is to embrace and, and you know, um, evaluate and to adopt innovation. 
Um, what, what, what's your AHSN called, Deborah? Because I know you're not. West of England. West of, West England. of England. Yeah, because the southwest is Devon and Cornwall. Yeah, I yeah you're... So West of England. Um, we tend to split Peninsula and then and then West of England. So we've had a number of uh, of innovations there. They have got, you know, they've got some of the soft money in the NHS. So again, you know, we've been involved in a number of innovations where they funded the pilots which give us then the ability to um, you know, demonstrate their worth, to build the business case, because we've had a year of, of no cost where we can test what the benefit of the innovation is, whether it does save us any money anywhere, and, and teams can then you know, develop a business case with some real empirical evidence behind it, uh, rather than perhaps being sceptical about evidence that, and forgive me, but that you might bring to the table that people might have less confidence in. Um, Dave and I, you know, remember uh, as a health economist, I did struggle at sometimes at some of the evidence that was put before me to help me with my, you know, my sales role. Um, so there's something about the credibility of evidence when it's been developed um, locally and with the support of something like an HSN over perhaps evidence that's been developed by by the sector or by you know a more commercial uh, environment. I think it's, it's it's great advice. I know that our colleagues out there. Um, I won't name them, but there are certain AHSNs who, who are quite difficult in, in right. terms of being approached. There are others that are really positive. Um, I'm 300 miles away from you. My, my local one um, is run by a guy, if anybody wants to write this down, his name is Russ Watkins. And, it, and he's actually always saying to me, if he ever bumps into me, please direct people towards us. They've got a long history, like you're saying, of, people who, of, of things that they can point to, and innovations they've taken on. Yeah. But yeah. People think that they're not and find them hard to reach. But seriously, drop me a line. I'll connect you with Russ. You know, Deborah's uh, talked about the West of England one now. Yeah. I'm sure you can contact them through their yeah. website. I, it's yeah. strange. I don't know where this comes from. This. Um, the other one that's uh, interesting, if I think just this week, where we're just, in fact, it's today, 25th of September, there's a deadline today for a submission for another uh, innovation that I've been asked to, you know, if we'd like to take, take part in, which is come through specialised commissioning. Um, so this is an innovation to do with stroke care, stroke management. Okay. That has been um, adopted by uh, specialist commissioning in my region and they've written out to all the, the acute providers who deliver acute stroke care to say, do you want to be part of, a, of an evaluation, a pilot? Uh, for a better word, for a year, we'll we'll pump prime it, uh, and then if it if it works, you want to take it forward, it'll cost you this much, and you know, it's not cost prohibitive, so we're, we'll sign up for that. I mean, those you, thoughts you coming through Sorry, those Deborah. routes, coming through those routes, seem to just much be much more successful um, than if we'd had a direct approach from the company who is, um, you know, who's produced that that technology. Yeah, let's 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 address that because that's the some of the key issues. Obviously, people are interested in. But you mentioned a phrase here that I think is a really useful one to remember. You you mentioned the phrase soft money. You know, sometimes I, I would call it funny money, which is a, not quite as inelegant as a term. But there's always those monies in the NHS if you know where to look and you know who to talk to. And I, I, I think companies sometimes um, neglect that kind of horizon scanning. And and um, so what, what would you be your advice? If you were standing up in front of a group, you, you were... Um, what would you have been called in the day? Healthcare consultant, something like that? Yeah, that was your title. If you were up in those people now, giving the keynote address, you've mentioned the HSN, what other advice would you give them? Um, well, I, I've, I've talked around this before, Dave, you've heard me, but it's about relationships, isn't it? You know, it's, it's really difficult to, um, 
to reject or or even you know not be very nice to somebody uh, who you know and who you respect and who you've got regard for and so you know, it is about building relationships that have kind of trust as as the basis and and the really difficult thing about that is how do you get that first conversation you know how do you get that opportunity um to even begin to build a relationship or or build trust and that's that's the hard yards bit, isn't it, that you and I and, and others did. Um, and it's using every possible you know, opportunity to, to just get that first conversation going. What I would say about, about the pandemic and the opportunity it's afforded us too, is that my world's never felt more accessible. Um, so, you know, I can, I can reach 9,000 people through the wonders of MS Teams, Zoom, whatever it is, in a way that I could never reach them before and I'm you know I'm a visible CEO I'm back to the floor I'm out and about um, but but access to clinicians in particular uh, you know it, they can much more likely to be able to jump into a 15-30 minute zoom call than they ever would have been able to you know to drive somewhere or come out to a meeting in a hotel or or you know what, whatever else it is um, and and so it, I think it's thinking about what does this whole new virtual environment offer as a set of new opportunities for, for accessing people, because we're all very familiar, very comfortable um, with it. Uh, and the interesting thing about, about the pandemic, should we end up in that, that space is, um, frenetic though it was at times, there was also a lot of downtime uh, because we weren't doing a lot of the usual things that people spend their, their downtime doing. You know, we weren't responding you know, to complaints, you know, in a timely fashion, you know, we paused audit activities or all sorts of things. And, um, and so I guess it's, it's not assuming that, that people haven't got time, um, but being really time efficient in how you approach people will be much more appealing than if you're trying to persuade somebody to, to come off site or come out to a big meeting, you know, if it's about a set time, um, you know, if it's about, you know, what time have you got, when, when might you be available? Uh, as opposed to we're doing something, you know, at this time of day, on this day, on this date, which can be quite, quite prohibitive. Um, but yeah, it all comes back to relationship building. So if you have that relationship, I'd, and again, this is not, nobody listening to this should take this as an opportunity to cold call you, okay? <laughs> if, if they do, we'll find out about them and we'll take, we'll take some kind of awful action against them in some way. But uh, <laughs> what kind of things would you... Do you ever sit there and think, oh, I wish farmer, I wish medtech would come through the door and say this. I wish somebody, if there was a way of doing this, if um, we just need this. Is, is there anything you think you absolutely need rather than want that those companies could help you with? Um, I, guess, I guess for me, what I would more likely to be able to articulate are, are the problems um, that we okay. you know, encounter. And then it's kind of almost down to to you colleagues to kind of innovate and come up with the solutions to some extent isn't it i mean sales is all about persuading somebody they want something that they never knew they wanted isn't it but but um the you know the challenge of that with the current financial constraints is that that is a really tough ask because you'll probably persuade my clinician of that but then when they come to talk to the likes of me i'll tell them it's all nonsense and that it's not at all what they need um so so that i think there's something about really understanding in a quite a nuanced way because you know, different providers different systems communities geographies have different problems is you know what is it that that system's trying to fix you know what is their big 
what is their big problem i mean in my system it's a the huge issue is 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 demand is you know is is excess demand we have a I don't know whether it's a culture or a history or a preference or what, but it's for, for everyone to turn up to the place with the lights on, which uh, is is the hospital. Um, so despite being a rural county with eight eight community hospitals, you know, some really high quality primary care, um, people tend to come to uh, to hospitals. Our A&Es are a real focus, they're a sort of magnet. And um, anything that helps us to to deal with that is going to be of, of interest to us. Uh, and that might be an, you know, a technology. It might be uh, an innovation or initiative or scheme. It's probably unlikely to be to be a medicine. Um, but then you'd go to other things. So looking at what's the disease profile? You know, what is it that people in Gloucestershire are dying of? Is it the same as everywhere else or is it something different? You know, you'll see that. If you look to our one Gloucestershire website, you'll see what I've said about respiratory care. You know, a lot of focus on um, on integrated respiratory care because we uh, we went there because the data told us that we over admitted patients with respiratory conditions in Gloucestershire, um, and so that was what drew our attention to respiratory. Was looking at the data. Uh, then we said, well, how should we do that? And we said, well, we need to do out of hospital care differently because that's why they're coming in because out of hospital care isn't what it needs to be, and that sort of set off the chain of events. So. Um, and some, you know, some people be impressed if you go, if you, if you, if your opening gambit is not, I've got something I want to sell you, but is, I've looked at your data and it tells me you've got a problem with this, and I think we might be able to help you with a solution. That's much more, for me, much more appealing. It's more emotionally intelligent than than just saying I'm here to sell blue suits and you look like you need a blue one. Yeah, and what, but having said that, I want to ask you a bit of a closed question, but it, it's it's a leading question. When was the last time you heard about a drug or a device? Yeah. And you thought, crikey, that sounds fantastic. I bet the docs can't wait to get their hands on that or wouldn't that be great for patients? When was the last time you got excited about a technology? Can you remember when it was? Uh, last week, the one about stroke. Really? Yeah, so tell us yeah. a bit about that. Well, what was it then? So oh, this is about... Um, say, I can't think of one. I can't think of one for 20 years. So that's I mean, really good. Again, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I've said where they, you know, how did they come to my, you know, how did they come to my attention? So, so my organisation, anything that has stroke in the, in the kind of, you know, header draws my, draws my interest in because as a trust, we don't perform well against, you might be familiar with the, the national audit tool called SNAP, which measures a trust's performance against a number of quality measures relating to stroke. Um, and my Achilles heel in my stroke pathway is the time it takes to get to imaging. Uh, and if you don't image somebody in a timely way, then you can't give them, you know, some of the new treatments that are going to transform their lives. Mm. So you can know that, you know, if you, if you get to the right treatment quickly, um, you can go from being somebody that's going to face life with a dense hemiplegia to somebody that looks like you or I, um, you know, with no, with no deficits. So, so, um, so yeah, so that, that, that's what, you know, piqued my interest. It's an innovation that will help us get to um, a patient to an image sooner than they might otherwise have done and then get that image to somebody that can make a decision about it uh, and get them the right treatment. And I'm, I'm going to go slightly different track now. I'm going to ask you a really good question on there, which is, um, and it links to something. Do you, you mentioned it before, I think, do you still go out on the shop floor? I, yeah. I know well, you're in Bristol and you've been working on reception with your yeah. HS receptionist shirt on and everything. Do you still do that? Yeah, a lot of the time. Yeah, I love it. Um, there won't be many weeks in my diary. Just take us sorry, Deb, but take us through why did you do it? What are the benefits? And then maybe give us an example of something you found out through that that, that has led to a change. I'd, I think people would be really interested. 
because okay. it's still unusual for people like you to be able to find the time to do it. Yeah. Um, so why do I do it? Um, one selfish reason and uh, one not so selfish. So um, I do it because if I didn't, I'd probably go crazy. So large parts of my job um, are um, dull, um, are complex, are frustrating, are not always rewarding. Um, three hours back on, you know, three hours on the shop floor and I'm completely clear why I do what I do. Um, completely clear why I've got to keep doing all of that other stuff because it makes it better for patients and makes it better for for my colleagues um, and I can be you know within 20 minutes on the shop floor I can be back in the zone wanting to do you know the rest of my job and do it really well um, and of course I could be on the shop floor all the time because I could go back and be a practitioner but then I wouldn't have the sphere of influence to make a difference that I have as a chief exec so so, so that's one reason why I do it is um, it just you know it, it reminds me why I come to work every day absolutely love it um, the other reason I do it is because it makes me human to people so it it shows uh, it shows a sign of uh, a side of a chief executive that not everybody believes exists so if I'm back to the floor um, I can talk about my kids my family my playing hockey you know what I've done what matters to me uh, and it humanizes me and people will probably come away feeling that I'm pretty approachable, um, that I'm not sat in my ivory tower. Um, I'll always drop in, you know, my fairly, you know, basic um, roots and, and my beginnings because that, again, it, it makes me uh, approachable. Uh, and I can give lots of examples, Dave, of where you know, I remember five healthcare assistants coming to tell me something that I absolutely needed to know that they had been sitting on as a, as a fear, as a worry, as a concern for a long time, but they hadn't felt that they had a chief exec that would take seriously, listen to them, even open the door to them. Um, and one of them, um, I'd been my partner on a back to the floor session and we'd made beds together and just chatted about, about stuff. Um, and she came and told me some stuff that was really important. I understood. And as a result of that, we were able to affect quite a bit of change. Um, but but other 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 things. It's I mean my exec team hate it. They're like, oh God, she's back to the floor. You know, don't look at your inbox um, because um, you you just pick up stuff that that you just it's like gold dust. You know, you feel it, you smell it, you touch it in a way that you can never get from a third party, from a meeting, from a set of minutes. Um, it's it's just incredible. I mean, I have to say sometimes it's thoroughly depressing. Um, recent visit to the mortuary. You know, I spent a lot of time in the pandemic worrying about them because, you know, they, they might what, have two deaths a day and suddenly they were there 10, 15, 20. Um, and um, they couldn't do viewings. People couldn't see their deceased family members and they were getting a lot of grief from people over the phone because they wanted to do it and they couldn't let them in. And so I just thought I'll go and take some cake and just have a chat. Um, and out of that came you know, their biggest issue was the fact that they've been trying to get their sticky carpet replaced for 15 years. I swear to God, it was about that big. Um, and they've been trying for about 15 years. And as you can imagine, by the following Friday, they've got a new carpet. In fact, they hadn't. They got a nice laminate wooden floor because they didn't want a sticky carpet. Um, and it's stuff like that. It's stuff like that. I've got a discretionary budget. People call it my fairy dust. I can just sprinkle fairy dust. And, um, you know, and, and, and of course, what you'll all recognise is, you know, within within an hour, because of the way the hospitals are, everybody knew that the mortuary had got a new carpet. Um, and, it, and, and, and what what comes out of that? Cause I'm really I'm really clear to make sure we all do it. 
so it doesn't become you know Deborah Lee's on a pedestal you know this is what this is the model of management and leadership in Gloucestershire this is the Gloucestershire way I don't expect my team to be doing it you know general managers to be doing it it's not it's not just something that I do I've told this story before but um, oh gosh it's 30 years ago now I, I, I was a middle manager in a, a big mental health trust and our chief exec was inspirational. He used to work in the canteen and, and dish out the chips and things like that. And he used to say what you said. Well, in the space of a, a lunchtime, I can see four or five hundred staff and say hello to them, you know. But anyway, all new managers in the trust had to spend a night sleeping on the wards with the patients in a mental hospital. And some of them refused to do it and wouldn't and he wouldn't take them on as a job. But I'll never forget we had one young manager did it and it was Simon Stevens. It was his first place on the management training scheme. So, <laughs> so I know you, you talk to him occasionally, so you can mention that to him. It's always impressed me, and I've, I've never forgotten it. He was very happy to do it, and uh, I think I think it says a lot about people. But that, it's it's a really really interesting thing that you said there. So the other thing I do, and um, it's just a small aside, but the other thing I I, I do, which is in a similar space, is um, I sign every complaints letter that leaves the trust. So um, you know, okay. not a small number. I probably sign I don't know thirty a week. Um, but in, in the hour or two it takes me to read and sign 30 complaints letters, I know more about um, the sort of care we're providing than I could ever get from a week back on the floor. Um, I know which people to be worried about, I know which departments to be most worried about. Um, you know, it's a really, really, uh, and I also know where, you know, we've had a really positive response where we've learned and reflected and and I also know where we get a really defensive um you know response where we nearly we nearly try to blame the patient for having the audacity to have you know not had a good experience so um so that teaches me a lot as well and without giving anything away what, what's a common thread in those complaints if you're talking to you you think we've got to get the grips with something what would it be communication the quality of oh, classic yeah yeah, sadly, uh, such an old chestnut. You know, but yeah, the quality, the quality of communication, and I guess I'd frame that in, in walking in somebody's shoes, and um, you know, communicating in a way that is you know, embodied by the fact that you've walked in their shoes, um, and that's about empathy, isn't it? Compassion. Um, yeah, that's what. I can go back. You know, I've been there. I'm sure I've. You know, there's many times I've said things to people, but. I, you know, I didn't spend 14 hours in PPE, but I would have spent 14 hours and you're tired and you say, you know, and things yeah. get said don't they, to somebody's relative down the phone or something. And and there you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the best bit of advice I've, I've ever received and I've seen it repeated. I don't know where it originally came from. And it says when, when you work clinically or you work anything with patients or something which is a routine conversation to you, it's the most important conversation of that person's life. Yeah. yeah. And it, that is so true in a hospital, whether you're a reporter or whether you're a consultant, isn't it? And um, but it's so easy to forget that when it is routine and you're doing it all the time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Right. And the, the well, analogy gonna, I use, one of the, the analogies I use with colleagues, because you know we get to the point, don't we? You know, you're tired. It's a Friday. Your compassion sponge is feeling a bit, a bit empty. But as you say, for that patient or family, it is their is their moment. Is I I just talk about that. I don't need. I'm sure many of you have been at the West End where you think where you feel like it's the first time they've ever performed, um, you know, and that they're performing just at you. And then you discover that it's been running for 10 years and they've been doing that every afternoon. 
<laughs> for 52 weeks so so i you know my my series if it's if just fake it if it's not authentic then fake it but do not you know do not be anything other than the best version of yourself um i accept that sometimes it's not easy and we're provoked and all of that stuff but um it is our job you know it, it absolutely is so uh, let's uh, use a little bit of time if, you, if you'd stayed in the industry in the pharmaceutical industry which you know could have been possible it would have been interesting if you're in a leadership role i'm sure you would have been now in a, in a in a big pharma company um what's been your impressions of the industry what what's your feelings around it how do you think it could improve its reputation its partnership working i just saw real open question like that so, so I guess for me, as you said, yeah, I'm unusual in having had both sets of experience. And I think I, I overwhelmingly feel a bit frustrated with um, my sort of peers and the NHS more generally in, in their attitude towards um, the industry in that I think far too many. Um, Dave, you've heard me tell this story before when I was trying to come back into the NHS and I was talking about my farmer experience, you know, my CV. It was all on there. I was proud of it. You know, I'd been invested in, I'd been developed. I thought I was going to be a better NHS leader for the time I spent in pharma. And um, I'd get coached from people who say, well, you know, don't put it on your CV. You know, say you're on a gap year. Um, I'd go to interviews and people would sort of ask me if I was sort of all right now. Had I got over that, you know, that, that sort of, you know, aberration or whatever. So, so um, you know, we have got a bit of an upward battle still with some, uh, you know, some people in terms of their perception of, of the industry. And and for me, I think it's, um, I don't think the industry always helps itself in getting its narrative right and positioning it itself. Um, you know, you will all know that that some of the most amazing things that saved lives were developed in commercially funded research um, that we couldn't have done, you know, if we didn't have pharma companies. Um, and many of the research trials that our patients access are sponsored by by you. Um, you know, we've got, I forget what it's called, what's the acronym, Dave, you know, that sets the, if you like, the profitability threshold of the industry. You know that you know you, the industry can't come in and 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 let rip through the NHS. You know how much profit the industry can make from the NHS is set by government. You know, in, and that and that was reduced. You know, wasn't it recently? Um, yeah. But the industry hasn't made much of that. I don't think most of my peers would know um, that that there are those sorts of checks and balances and caps in the way that the industry um, makes its profit. So I think probably for me it would be um, you know going back to some of those basics of what's your story you know what's the narrative um uh, rather than being allowed to be perceived as you know the the, the sales people with the free pens and the stuff that perhaps you know uh, i mean don't get me wrong we're always great and again this is not meant to put you in an obligation it's a theoretical thing but it, it if if somebody came to you and said when he, when are your younger managers and said i want a placement in pharma or a pharma company approached you and said, can we put someone in your organisation for six months to work on a project to learn? Is that something you'd be minded to do or would you hold your yeah, hands yeah, up? Yeah. Yeah? yeah, not at all. No. I mean, what I'd, what I'd be looking for, what would be great is that reciprocal stuff, isn't it? Because we always struggle to let anybody go and do anything. Yeah. But it's hard. But um, but yeah, and if, you know, if internships and, and all of that, I'd be um, I'd be delighted to. Um, let's, let's just say, because I know what the answer would be for this. But let's explain to our colleagues. You've got nine thousand staff. How many of them are health economists? Oh, that would be me. Um, um, yeah. um, <laughs> not many. When not many. your docs might have done a, on a course, might have done yeah. a module. Some, some dealer people really weren't they? And done that long that distance learning certificate that I did. 
so you you would love to grab something like an analyst or um, like that a health economist or a really good researcher. Um, I've, I've just sorted something out this morning for one of my got a fantastic new colleague, and they're going to be doing some pro bono work for a major hospice. And uh, the hospice was just like, what? You know, as soon as they saw their CV, that they, they got someone who can come in and provide that the evaluations and the research at postdoctoral level. You know, so there, it'd be the same for you, wouldn't it? I, I know. Yeah. Um, right. We're coming to the end. And um, what should have I asked you? What should I have asked you? What would you like to say that we haven't covered? Oh, that's a great question. I, I was asked at the end of the uh, end of interviews I'm doing is what question should I have asked you that would have really kind of, you know, told me everything that I needed to know. Um, you've covered great ground, Dave. I think I'm going to disappoint you. I don't think there is um, a lot yes, of um, that I wanted to, um, to impart. I've got the Viagra SMPC and see if you still remember things. Um, or the Aricept SNPC, I'm giving away the, the sort of thing that Deborah You're giving away the company now, aren't you? Yeah, you're giving away the company. It's, it's probably a matter of public record, but then, yeah. But, oh, uh, yeah, and yeah. What, what are you, um, one of the questions had up my sleeve. So next week, what is the number one thing that you want to achieve next week at work? Let's finish on that. What is the number one thing next week? So it's back. It's back in back in the well-being um, space, Dave. Um, I'm trying to uh, reach agreement with 9,000 staff on what is the best way to acknowledge and reward what they did for for Gloucestershire and for our patients during COVID. And you'd think that rewarding somebody would be really easy, wouldn't you? But um, having started out trying to do the right thing, it turns out that it's in danger of being the wrong thing um, for at least half the people. So, yeah, if next week I can land um, whether they want a, 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 a brooch, a pin or whatever it is, or whether they want a half a day's extra leave or we've got a whole gamut of things. I'm almost kind of, as I said, what started off as trying to be something really positive. I fear that I'm in danger of offending at least half the people. Um, yeah. I'm going to wrap it up in my. I do a blog every week and a blog a few times a week. I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up in an announcement about parking on the basis that that'll become far more controversial than anything about a pin or a brooch. It's a hub. I'm, I'm stuck. Yeah, it's. Uh... Oh, it, it takes me back. What was that? There was a chair, wasn't there, who, who was going to give out baskets of fruit for people who gave up smoking, and that led to all kinds of problems. You think? Oh, oh, to start with good. It seems such a good idea to start with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Love that. We're going to go now. I'll let you get back on with your work. Really, really thank grateful. You. Thanks, you can, everybody. And giving us the time, okay? And and Deborah, My thank pleasure. you. Yeah. Okay. Good luck to My you. Pleasure, and all thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.